and Galilee. He's making his way south to Jerusalem where he will fulfill the purpose of his coming. And the purpose of Jesus' coming, that, that little baby that we're getting ready to celebrate in the Christmas season and starting to see all the promotions and stuff happening, he came to be the sacrificial lamb who would die for the sins of the world. And that he's on his way to Jerusalem to fulfill that purpose. He doesn't just have 12 disciples anymore. He has many disciples. Okay? And the disciples, the 12 original, are now referred to as apostles. The 12 apostles. And we've seen that in the Gospel of Luke. Well, let's just take a moment and prepare our hearts as we get ready to teach through this section of Scripture. What's going to keep you from receiving this morning? Is there an anxiety in your heart? Are you feeling a little uncomfortable? A little unsure? Are you looking around and assessing who's here? Maybe you're burdened for somebody. Maybe you're burdened for a situation in your own life. And you need to know God cares about those things and you can give those things to Him. I know I'm personally concerned about a pastor in Iran who is being forced to denounce his faith in Jesus Christ. And if he doesn't deny Jesus at this moment that he's facing beheading on Wednesday, as early as Wednesday, we pray for him, for strength, Lord, and for the church everywhere that we will stand strong on Christ. Help him to be strong in you and keep his eyes on you. You know, another thing you may need to prepare, and I mention this one a lot, is sometimes when it comes to the Word of God, we can get kind of crusty. And when our lives get crusty, it's hard for the Word to penetrate. And God puts it on us to prepare our soil to receive. So just prepare your soil. Ask the Lord to speak to you this morning because you need to hear from Him. I do. Speak, Lord. We are listening. In Jesus' name, Amen. Chapter 17, verse 11. Now, on His way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As He was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met Him. They stood at a distance. They stood at a distance. I just want to take some time here. They stood at a distance because this was the law of the land at this time. Lepers were considered unclean and being unclean, they were required by social law to give verbal warning to anyone who might come near them. Yelling, unclean! Unclean! This was their life. This is the way it was. And in this particular culture at this time, and under Mosaic law, under Old Testament law, anyone who had anything that was considered to be a communicable disease was forced to be quarantined with no contact with anyone who was healthy. So these guys, it may have been years since they've had contact with anyone who's healthy, but worse than that, it may have been years since they had contact with the very people they loved the most. Uh, Spouses, 
children, friends, family, friends. They were, they were not allowed to go near these people. And it didn't matter. I mean, if, if, if a, a man or a woman was newly married and suddenly uh, there was leprosy spotted, they were forced to, to be quarantined. I just want to say right here that sin is, is a great deal like leprosy in that it has a tendency to seclude us from one another and to isolate us from the very relationships that we enjoy. Somehow it keeps us walking in the shadows so that we can't be fully honest with each other and we're afraid of being fully honest with each other. And therefore, a sin like leprosy will tear us down physically, emotionally, spiritually, and relationally. And God our Father, who cares greatly about us for this reason, calls us to confession. Not just confession with Him, but confession with one another. Uh, a couple of scriptures that come to mind as I think about this. The first one here is 1 John uh, chapter 1, verse 7. I'm going to have you read this with me, but I'm going to stop you as we go a little bit here. Would you read? start reading with me? If we walk in the light as He is in the light. Now stop. Right there is a picture of full disclosure. Not walking in the shadows. Okay, No secrets. We're being real with each other about what the obvious, about what we know that somehow the enemy wants to convince us we're alone in our struggles. We are not alone in our struggles. And the more we walk in the light, the more this will become a reality. Let's start from the beginning. If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin... We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, stop right there. I just want to emphasize again, not only with God, but with one another, just being honest about the obvious. Okay? Confession, in confession, you're not telling God something that He doesn't already know. That's a double negative. In confessing, you're simply agreeing with God about what God already knows. Okay? So it's the same way in relationship with us that we're not going to let the devil de- defeat us. We need each other. We can be vulnerable with one another. All right. So let's start with He. Okay. He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make Him out to be a liar and His Word has no place in our lives. Now, there's another passage I want us to read together. This is from the book of James, the epistle of James, chapter 5, verse 16. Would you read this with me? Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. So you see what Scripture says, and yet somehow in church we play this little game with each other, put on our happy face when we hit the church door. Literally, I mean, honestly, we can be griping at each other all the way to the church door, and then all of a sudden the switch goes off, and we put on our church faces, and everything's good. I'm okay. You're okay. And, and this is the relationship. It even gets to the point that we act surprised when somebody falls in their walk, especially leaders. Well, how did that happen? <laughs> we ask ourselves. And the devil loves it. He loves it 
because as long as we pretend, as long as we're hiding in the shadows, God can't do the greater work that he wants to do. So the application here is simply the capacity of being vulnerable with one another is the doorway or gateway, you know, the route to deeper fellowship. And if you flip that around, walking in the shadows only destroys our potential to be all that God wants us to be. God help us to be real with one another. Amen? God help me as your pastor to be real with you about my vulnerabilities. Okay? I walk the same walk, live in the same... I love my buddy Pete. Uh, back in high school, he used to pinch himself once in a while and say, still flesh. <laughs> okay? So uh, we've got to be real with each other. Back to chapter 17, uh, the last part of verse 12. Uh, they stood at a distance. That was the basis for all that. Okay, leprosy is a picture of sin. It isolates us like these lepers. And then it goes on. And they called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. And when he saw them, he said, go show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were healed. Earlier, in our study of the Gospel of Luke, when we were in chapter 5, there was a man who came to Jesus who was absolutely covered with leprosy. And, and it's very articulated there in chapter 5. He was covered with leprosy. And this is what he said to Jesus. This is chapter 5, verse 12. Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Then Jesus ordered him, do not tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Wow. There's a number of things here that we have to talk about. So we expect to be here for just a few moments, okay? Uh, there's a lot of good stuff here. The first thing I want you to notice would be the contrast. The contrast between Luke chapter 17 and Luke chapter 5. The first contrast I want you to notice is that in chapter 17, these lepers don't come close to Jesus. They call out to Him from, from the distance and there's no evidence whatsoever of Jesus touching them. Okay, you see that? You contrast that with chapter 5, that Jesus literally touches this unclean man who not only has leprosy, but is covered with leprosy. Big contrast right there. The second thing I want you to notice is that the man Jesus touches is healed immediately, while these ten lepers are healed as they went. So the first thing I want to point out with those two contrasts is simply this. God isn't into formulas. He rarely does things the same way twice. Study the miracles of Jesus and you will see this. I mean, in one place he says, go show yourselves to the priests. And as they're going, they're healed. Another one, Jesus touches and voila, instant miracle. Everything is, is good. And yet, it seems to me that we in the church, both in our private lives 
and in our church lives have this tendency to look for formulas as to how God is doing something. If Jesus spits in the dirt and makes mud and puts it in the person's eye, the next thing you know, we have a whole uh, religious decree and doctrine of how to properly spit in dirt and make mud to put it in someone's eye so that they can be healed. We love formulas. And so the first application in this section of Scripture is simply this. God isn't into formulas. And here's the deal. He wants us to learn to put our faith in Him and not in institutions and not in programs and not in methodologies. It's about Him and it's about His glory, which comes back to the statement that keeps resounding in my brain as I'm studying. Do we really want God or do we just want His stuff? (laughs) And so in this church, we just have a commitment that if at any point in the service God wants us to go a different direction, that we're ready to follow His lead. Because we don't want to be in the programs, we want to be in to Him. Now, <clears throat> a third thing. Doesn't the fact that these ten men were healed as they went present the possibility of progressive healing? Did you hear it? Present the possibility of progressive healing. Is it possible for someone to receive a prayer for healing say, at a prayer meeting on Wednesday night and walk away with the sense that nothing really happened, but by Thursday a week, all of a sudden they notice that something is changing? And yet what we want is we want to think that if we come and we have the elders pray on us, that it's going to be, voila, instant miracle. But in this case, it was as they went, they were healed. And so what I want to put in us and I believe God wants to put in us, is this possibility that when we are prayed for and when we're obedient in being prayed for, that just because we didn't see something happen instantly, that we should walk away with wonder and anticipation. Might that have put something into play that God wants to do on the way? So rather than checking it out and saying, well, I guess God didn't answer that prayer, (laughs) that we say, I wonder what He did with that prayer. Because I don't believe any prayer is wasted. Okay? It's a a statement of hope. Now, moving on. But still in the same passage of Scripture. We're we're still talking about where we are. In both situations, Luke chapter 5, Luke chapter 17, Jesus tells them, to go and show themselves to the priests. But in chapter 5, he does something different. He says, show show yourself to the priests as a testimony to them. This would be very similar to say if we prayed for somebody and we witnessed a miracle of healing. Somebody has been going to the doctor. And so they go to their doctor and they say, my church prayed for me and it looks like I'm healed would you validate that? Okay, it would be very similar to this kind of a thing. Uh, a friend of mine <clears throat> who seems to be in the news more and more uh, actually was a Kansas farm boy who went to camps with Valerie's family. His name's Jim Garlow, and maybe you've seen him around a little bit. He's quite a radical voice in our day in America, and particularly in California. But he was concerned about all these things that were on TV as far as televangelists go and miracles and healings and some of the things that, that, that he was observing and that his people were seeing. And so Jim, the guy that he is, I mean, 
very, very studied in theology. Uh, I think he has a doctorate from Princeton and he has all sorts of degrees. Wonderful guy. He went and started to these places where these healings happen and started interviewing doctors and patients. The result was Jim wrote a book called God Still Heals. <laughs> because he says you can say whatever you want, but this stuff is validated. Doctors have it written in their journals that something happened and they're attributing it to prayer. Now, we need to pray for Jim. You know, he and his wife, Carol, uh, they've been struggling. She's battled cancer for some time. And yet here's a couple that after church, they're always available. They always place hands on those who need healing. They've seen many miracles, but they haven't seen their miracle with Carol. But did they stop praying for other people for miracles? No, because Jim believes... God still heals. But the point of this, go show yourselves to the priest as a testimony to them. And and the question is, what has God done for you? And if he's touched your life, have you told someone your story? Because everyone who's been touched by God and has experienced God has a story to share with others. Okay, so show yourselves to others as a testimony to them. Listen, people could argue all day and all night about what they believe. But they can't argue with your testimony and your story. All right. Now, again, uh, back to this idea of both of these situations, them being told by Jesus to go present themselves to the priest. This is actually a requirement of Mosaic law, of Old Testament law. In Leviticus chapters 13 and 14, it specifically says there if someone has a skin disease like leprosy, that he is to go show himself to the priest so the priest can validate the healing. If he finds evidence of healing, then he's to have that former patient, that former uh, leprosy patient, go into seclusion for seven more days just to make sure that there's no other outbreaks. And if there is no further evidence of, of leprosy on this person, then he's to make the the necessary sacrifices, the first choice of which is sacrificing two dove, okay? And then he gets to go home. And can you imagine years in isolation and now you get to go home? And this is the story of these ten men in today's passage. They've been separated from those they love the most and for the first time they can look at their skin and they can say, we get to go home. But there's one more application that I need to point out before we move on in our scripture today. And that's this. Please notice that obedience often precedes healing. Obedience often precedes the miracle. Jesus says, go show yourselves to the priest. And as they went. Now think about this. Are you all with me? You look alive. I mean, you really do. You look wonderful. your eyes are with me, you seem to be engaged, you're listening. It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful picture. But get this. The Old Testament law said, if there's evidence of healing, then go show yourself to the priest. But the problem for these guys is Jesus didn't heal them yet. He just said, go show themselves to the priest. So why would they even begin to go? And I have a feeling that they probably said, well, okay, 
And, and they probably started, you know, with their heads kind of down and kind of moving along slowly. And they're wondering, why would he tell us to go show ourselves to the priest now? I mean, it's, it's, it's worthless. This is useless. This is stupid because the priest won't even see us. We're unclean. Why are we doing this? And they're stepping in obedience. And as they're stepping, one guy notices first and says, hey, something's happening. And the other guy starts to look and say, something's happening. And so now their heads are a little higher and they're like, Wow, we're being healed as we go. And they're walking with a little skip in their step until they're fully cleansed. And one of the guys can't even take it. He has to jolt right back to, the, to Jesus and, and thank Him for, for healing him. But the point right here in the Scripture is that they were obedient to act, even though they didn't understand What do you suppose would have happened if they chose to say, that's ridiculous, we're not going? We're not healed. What's the point? They wouldn't have received a miracle. And so that puts it back on us. And it's the question, why are we so slow to receive prayers for healing? Hello? I mean, you're thinking, right? Why are we so slow to receive prayers for healing? Remember last week when I pointed out my toe and said, my toe is killing me all of a sudden. And praise God, I can minister out of my weakness. And by the way, I'm ministering out of weakness today. But God is strong. For where I'm weak, there he is strong. I'm tired, you know. But I pointed to my toe. There was a lady who came to church last week with a sore toe. And she said, the minute I pointed to my toe and said, my toe is killing me, the pain in her toe went away. I'm not making that up. And in fact, I'm wondering why I even told you that, but I'm glad I did. Because that's way cool. <clears throat> now I'm going to be, oh no, <laughs> and you're all going to be healed, and I'm going to be crawling out of this place. <clears throat> Let's read together. This is James chapter 5, starting with verse 14. Is any one of you sick? He should call for the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Yeah. Why are we so slow to act on that passage of Scripture? I was thinking about this and it reminded me of a man in the Old Testament by the name of Naaman. You know that name, Naaman? He lived about 850 uh, B.C. So we're about 900 years prior to where we are today. That's, you know, on the long end of all of that. He was a commander in the Syrian army, and he was very powerful, very wealthy to the point that he had servants in his home. But one day he broke out with leprosy. Now, can you imagine being a leader of that caliber and having all your life all marked out for you, but now you're condemned to, to a life of poverty and isolation. But there was a young slave girl in his house who was actually an assistant to his wife. She was from Israel. And she knew about the prophet Elisha. Not Elijah, but Elisha. And she knew that he had the power to heal. So she got word to Naaman. And Naaman went to see Elisha, who, by the way, happened to live in Syria. So this is 900 years earlier. He's in the basic region where we are today. I think that's pretty cool. And uh, Elisha tells Naaman to go uh, bathe themselves seven times in the Jordan River 
and, and he will be clean. Eventually, Naaman does what the prophet tells him, and he experiences a miracle, but like you and me, he was a little bit slow in responding. And so I want you to just hear this situation from the Scripture. Okay, this is Second uh, Kings chapter 5, starting with verse 10. Just listen. Elisha sent a messenger to Naaman. And, of course, Elisha's not going to be around this unclean man at this point. So he sent a messenger to him. Go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry and said, now I want you to watch the formula here. Okay, we're into formulas, right? Watch this formula. Look at this. Went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me, one, and stand and call on the name of the Lord, his God, two, wave his hand over the spot, three, and cure me of leprosy. (laughs) Four. (laughs) Formula. You see it? Yeah. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than any of the rivers in Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. And he mentions those rivers because like, why would I want to bathe in the waters of Israel when I've got my own rivers back home? It's prejudice. I'm not going to do that. It's ridiculous. Well, watch how this transport, uh, tra- how unfolds. This is, uh, this is interesting how God uses the foolish things to confound the wise. Watch this. Verse 13. Naaman's servant went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? And that's a question we all ask, right? If, if God were to ask me some great thing, I, to do some great thing, I would do it. Think about that. Huh? Pick me, pick me, Lord. Huh? All right, it goes on. Servant's still talking. How much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? So Naaman went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times as the man of God had told him, and his flesh was restored. And I like this next part. And was clean like that of a young boy. Man, I want that bath. Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. Please accept now a gift from your servant. If God had told you to do some great thing for him, would you not have have done it? I had a mentor when I was young and studying for the ministry that I always wished he'd call me and ask me to do something great. Yes, I'll do it. Call me. And then one day there was a message left that I'm supposed to call Pastor Jimmy. And I'm thinking, this is it. This is a great thing. And, and I get on the phone with Pastor Jimmy and I found out he's just making a blitz of calls trying to get everybody to some event. And I was like, bummer, you know. What's great as that? I don't want to go to some event. But why not? If God asks you to go bathe in the water, why not go? What have you got to lose? Huh? Why not do the simple things? And it's like we'd rather just live with our sicknesses and take all kinds of pills and so forth and so on. And I say, why not receive prayer? It's not going to you know, help my resume any. But man, we need to pray because Scripture says to. Right? Okay. So, the application is for us to receive prayers of healing. And get this, it's actually a test of our obedience. Okay? It's not a matter of how much faith you have. It's just stepping out on what you know. That's faith in action. Okay, back to our text. Well, okay, so these ten guys now, as they went, are are healed or or cleansed. And uh, verse 15, one of them... 
when he saw he was healed, came back praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And then this big emphasis here, and he was a Samaritan. Okay, an unclean Samaritan, a half-breed. The Jews and the Samaritans didn't get along very well because as far as the, the Samaritans were concerned, the Jews didn't worship properly. And as far as the Jews were concerned, the, the, the Samaritans were only half-breeds. Yet right here in the midst of pain and suffering, we find at least one of these Samaritans in the mix of a group of, of Jews. Why? Because they had a common bond in their brokenness and in their isolation, in their separation. When, when your whole world has rejected you, race no longer becomes a factor. And it was in their brokenness. They found each other and they probably found out, wow, those Samaritans aren't as bad as I've always been told. Wow, those Jews are not as bad as I've always been told. And, and this message here is so strong to the church today. Oh, if we could just stop comparing and measuring and, and coming to church out of pride and putting on our big hats of what we know about scriptures and so forth and so on and start loving each other out of brokenness, it's there that the walls will come down and we will find deeper fellowship. And it's not going to happen here on Sunday morning except in the course that you're praying for each other. It's got to happen where you're connecting with the body in smaller groups, where you're sharpening each other, being real with each other, and spurring one another on to love and good deeds. Now, that doesn't take away from the importance of coming together like this, but there's a deeper work that God wants to do, and, and the application is simple, that we would learn to fellowship in brokenness rather than in pride. Verse 17. So Jesus asked them, We're not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except... And then there's the emphasis again. This foreigner? <clears throat> but what I want you to see here is that it appears like the Lord's looking for thanks from people. I mean, He's done a great work and He's expecting some kind of appreciation. Where are the other nine? We're not there ten who are healed. You think they all come running and tackling Jesus. Thank you. We get to go home now. But instead, they just run off and they're on their way. Hopefully, they went to the priest and fulfilled this whole thing, you know. But they may not have. They might have said, we're cleansed. What's the point? Let's just go home. And some want to come to their defense and say, you know, they might have thought in their arrogance, you know, we're Jews. We're the chosen race. Healing is our entitlement. We don't need to thank anybody. Others want to point to this and say, it's a picture of the nation of Israel and their whole response to Jesus. They didn't receive what He had for them. They didn't express gratitude. But what we all have to recognize is that it was this one rejected Samaritan who the Scripture says came back and fell at Jesus' feet thanking Him. Was no one found to return to give praise to God except for this foreigner? Jesus is looking for thanks. And that's an area of contention for us. Jesus is looking for thanks. Why does He need thanks? Well, it's kind of the natural overflow of a deeper work when you really, really, really appreciate something. But the problem is, and it goes back to that same thing that keeps going in my brain recently over and over and over again because it's a work God's doing in me. Do I really want Him or do I just want His stuff? 
And the primary here is that God wants a relationship with us. And, and, and the full thrust of our relationship with Him in the church is what we need and what we want. And until we realize what we really need is Him, then we're not going to see the other things that God wants to bestow upon us. But Jesus is looking for things. You know, C.S. Lewis really grappled with this whole idea of God needing praise and thanks. He really, really struggled with it. And as a result of his struggle, he's given to us what some have considered to be his greatest contribution to theology. And I just have to have you hear a little bit about this. It's in his essay called The Problem of Praise in the Psalms. And just listen to a little bit of, of how he came to process what this is all about. So the most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of compliment, approval, or the giving of honor. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. Lovers praising their mistresses. Readers, their favorite poet. Walkers, praising the countryside. Players, praising their favorite game. Praise almost seems to be, get this, inner health made audible. Inner health, a good thing going on inside that's overflowing. huh? Inner health made audible, but he goes on, listen to this. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep telling one another how beautiful they are. Not out of compliment. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. Wow. Inner health made audible. Praise completing its enjoyment. The appointed consummation. Praise and thanksgiving are the natural result of a deeper thing that's going on inside of us. And it's like it will bust if we don't express it like we should. And, and the challenge here, if praise and thanksgiving comes hard for you, and even when we sing songs of praise to God, if that's so foreign to you, then the challenge here is to look at your relationship with God because He has so much more for you. He wants you to break forth in the songs. And before we come down too hard on these nine who didn't come back and say thank you, we need to look at our own GQ. And no, that's not uh, Gen- Gentleman's Quarterly magazine. That This is your gratitude quotient. Measuring your gratitude quotient. Do I take time to give thanks and praise to God out of what I see Him doing? About what I'm experiencing? Out of my relationship and love for Him. I love this psalm. It, it, in fact, it appears six times. One day I was just studying the Scripture and I realized, I never noticed that it appears six times. But I took it from Psalm 107 today, verse 1. Would you just read verse 1 with me right now? Let's read it together. Do we have that? Yeah, read verse 1. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His love endures forever. Can you say it again? Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His love endures forever. Now look away from the screen, okay? And and look at God with your spiritual eyes and say it from your heart. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His love endures forever. 
Now let's read some more. Let's go down to verse 8. Read with me verse 8, Psalm 107. Let them give thanks to the Lord for His unfailing love and His wonderful deeds for men. For He satisfies the thirsty and fills the hungry with good things. Have you experienced His abundance? Out of that, give praise and thanks to the Lord. If you're having a hard time giving praise and thanks to the Lord, I believe it's putting a finger on an area of your life that you're giving too much attention to and you're putting too much stock there. It might be things, it might be people, and it might be circumstances. And if you're thinking if all those things could get you straight, then I'll have something to be thankful for and I'm telling you, you're missing life. Okay? Yes. Start with the relationship. What we really need is Him. In fact, this is the verse that's been ministering to me the most recently. Psalm 37, 4. Would you read it with me? Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Maybe you know this old hymn. Now think we all are God. Sing it with me. With heart and hands and voices, who wondrous things hath done in whom this world rejoices. Who from our mother's arms has blessed us on our way with countless gifts of love and still is ours today. That is a classic. It's one of the great old hymns written in the 18th century by Martin Reinhardt. He was a pastor during the Thirty Year War. The Thirty Year War, one of the most devastating wars in all of Europe's history. Unfortunately, I'm sad to say, it was started with tension between Lutherans and Catholics. Okay? The name of our God being undermined by religious practices that get their eyes off God and onto their personal preferences. And in the course of that war, Reinhardt was doing as many as, get this, 40 funerals in one day. He also, in that time, buried his own wife. But he wrote this great classic hymn as a prayer. No music to it at the time, but it was a table grace for his family to express together. In the midst of horror, he was able to give thanks. And that's why I encourage families, have meals together, bow your heads you don't just, it's not about blessing the food. It's about recognizing where it all comes from. And it's not just about that. The food is just a small picture of all the wonderful things God has done for us. Yet here we are, the wealthiest people, top 5%, wealthiest people in all the world, and we have a hard time being thankful. If you, if you make $50,000 a year in your household, you're in the top two wealthiest percent in the entire world. Yet we have a difficult time giving thanks. Give thanks to the Lord for He is good. His love endures forever. Is that convicting or what? But then the last verse in the passage. Then Jesus said to the man, Rise and go. Your faith has made you well. Now wait a minute. The guy's already healed, right? Right? As he went, he was cleansed? Yes, but the literal translation here it's, it's the verb, sozo. Huh? Rise and go. Your faith 
has saved you. You see, it's a wonderful thing to experience physical healing, but it doesn't hold a candle to, to eternal salvation. It doesn't hold a candle to a relationship with the living God because everyone who experiences physical healing will eventually die. But will we be able to stand before our Creator? And this man, by coming back to Jesus, was saying, I don't care about your stuff, Lord. I really want you. And he was one of the ten. What I really want is you. And in so doing this, he received the fullness of life that only Christ could bring. You know, in the book of Romans, the author is confronting a problem with mankind. And that problem is that there's all sorts of evidence of God. But there's a group of people, in fact, many people, who refuse to act on the evidence of God that is there. And in the course of this, he writes this. This is from Romans 1, verse 21. For although they knew God, and that's the interesting word, Gnosko, from which we get gnosis, which is knowledge, which is really kind of a head knowledge, which means they have an awareness or a recognition of God. For although they could recognize God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. You know, we have a word for that. It's the word agnostic. Agnosticism. It's the refusal to act on the evidence that is there. Don't confuse it with an atheist because an atheist has chosen to reject the evidence that is there. But this agnostic is one who refuses to give glory to God or to give thanks to Him. And this is the call this morning. That's why we did one song up front. And and we really wanted to do this last week. But here we are today because this is a call to giving expressions of thanksgiving to our God and of praise to Him. And so we're going to move into our time of communion If someone would help by going and getting the the kids, I would greatly appreciate that. But uh, we want families to take communion together. But uh, let's just pause for a moment and and pray, and then I'll give you some instructions. Praise you, O God. Thank you, O God. Your deeds are wonderful. Forgive me, O God, for taking for granted the many blessings that I have. Forgive me, O God, for somehow thinking that being an American is my entitlement and to be in the top 5% wealthiest people in the world is somehow because I'm better than somebody else. Instead of saying, praise God from whom all blessings flow. So we worship You, Lord. We give You thanks. And we give You praise. Oh, Lord, may it overflow from the greater work that You're doing in us. May it be a sign of the inner health that You're bringing in our being that what flows forth isn't cursing and foul words, but it's praise to You and thanksgiving. Be glorified, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.